70 years with KBS World Radio, 70 years of global Korea. Throughout the year, we celebrate the 70th anniversary of KBS World Radio with the voices of our listeners from all over the world. Здравствуйте. Меня зовут Ольга. Мы из города Кунгур, Пермский край. Очень рады отправить вам видео. Итак, KBS исполняется 70. Hello, we are Alexandra and Olga. I send greetings to all of you on behalf of my brother Alexander as well, because he has difficulty speaking due to his condition. KBS World Radio is celebrating its 70th anniversary this year. 70 years is not a short time. I think the years added more value to KBS World Radio just like good wine. I first started to tune into KBS World Radio in the late 90s and have been enjoying the channel ever since. Now I can't imagine my life without KBS World Radio. Happy 70th birthday! Seventy years with KBS World Radio, seventy years of global Korea. KBS World Radio brings Korea to you wherever you are. It's Monday, the 30th of October, and welcome to Career 24. I'm your host, Kwon jang Thousands gathered in Seoul on Sunday for a memorial service marking the one-year anniversary of the Itaewon crowd crush. However, President Yoon did not attend and joined a separate church service. We'll have more details in news briefing shortly. The number of cattle farms with lumpy skin disease cases has now risen to 64 after just 10 days. We'll find out more about the disease and its risks for our in-depth today. And finally, Ulsan Hyundai FC have been crowned K-League 1 champions for the second year in a row. We'll go over it for our Monday Sports Roundup later. Let's begin Career 24. Memorial events were held throughout Seoul on Sunday to mark the one-year anniversary of the Halloween crowd crush in Itaewon that claimed 159 lives. Hundreds of people, including bereaved families, marched from the site of the tragedy, past the Yongsan presidential office and north towards Seoul Plaza, where the main event was held. Around 3,000 people gathered in front of the Seoul City Hall, calling for legislation of the Itaewon Disaster Special Act to enable further investigation and measures to prevent similar accidents from occurring again. Speaking at the event was Yi Jung-min, who lost his daughter in the tragedy and is now chairman of the Itaewon Tragedy Victims Family Committee. Let's hear what he had to say. 이태원 참사로 생을 달리한 
Why do you think the 159 victims who lost their lives in the Itiwan disaster had no choice but to become stars in the sky? I would like to hear an answer to whether you think the government is not responsible. We did not want to become bereaved families. We should not have become bereaved families. It was clearly predicted, and there was proactive intervention, and there were warnings. If the predictions and warnings had been recognized and a plan was implemented, we would not have become bereaved families. For this and other major headlines of the day, we have joining us in the studio now Kim Ingyung, the Deputy Editor-in-Chief of KBS World's English News Service. Ingyung, hello. Hello, Chang-ho. At the main event at Seoul Plaza, bereaved families and opposition parties called for the swift parliamentary passage of the Itaewon Disaster Special Act. Can you tell us what this bill proposes? Yes, the special act is aimed at launching an independent probe to identify the structural cause of the deadly crowd crush, as well as to punish high-ranking officials for failing to prevent the tragedy. Opposition parties and the families of the victims say that the crowd crush could have been prevented had the police properly executed safety procedures. But the ruling People Power Party says investigations have already shed sufficient light on what happened and that the opposition is only politicizing the tragedy ahead of the general elections next year. The ruling party is instead seeking to revise the Framework Act on the Management of Disaster and Safety to require local governments to establish safety measures for public gatherings without official organizers. The families called on President Yoon sung yeol to attend the event as well, but he opted not to and instead attended a separate ch- uh, Christian service at Yangam Church in Seoul, where he spoke to the churchgoers. Can you tell us about what he said at the service? Yes, the president said that the government has put in efforts to build a safer South Korea and will continue to work toward that aim so that the sacrifices of the victims will not be in vain. Let's hear his own words. This day last year was the saddest day of my life, and I believe everyone in South Korea feels the same way as I do. I'd like to express my condolences to those who lost their lives in this unfortunate accident. As citizens of the country that those people loved, we have the responsibility to build a better world. The presidential office reportedly looked into attending the memorial but decided not to, deeming that the event was politicized as it was jointly hosted by four opposition parties. Meanwhile, President Yoon will meet with the Democratic Party leader Lee Jae-myung at a gathering of political leaders at the National Assembly before he gives a budget speech on Tuesday. Can you tell us more? Before the budget speech, National Assembly Speaker Kim Jin-pyo will preside over a meeting which will be attended by the party chiefs and floor leaders of the PPP and the DP, as well as the President of the Constitutional Court, the Prime Minister, the Chief of the Election Watchdog and the Head of the State Audit Agency. DP Chief Spokesperson Kwon Jin-sung said on Monday that he himself made the decision to attend the meeting. This comes after PPP Chief Kim Gyeon suggested a meeting with his DP counterpart last week, which was met with counter-proposing a three-way meeting, including the president, but the top office effectively rejected the proposal. The meeting would mark the closest contact between the president and E since Yoon's inauguration last May, as they have only exchanged brief greetings at events since then. This is leading to speculation of a breakthrough for cooperation amid deep polarization between the ruling and opposition blocs. Moving on, can you tell us the latest on the lumpy skin disease outbreak that has spread across the country's cattle farms? 
Sure. As of 2 p.m. Monday, the number of farms with confirmed lumpy skin disease infections has risen to 64. It has taken less than two weeks for the number to go from one to more than 60. Three additional infections were confirmed in the South Chungcheong, North Jeolla, and Gangwon provinces, and authorities are currently conducting tests for four suspected cases. Meanwhile, the government plans to complete the acquisition of lumpy skin disease vaccines by Wednesday for a nationwide inoculation of cattle by November 10th. According to the Agriculture Ministry on Monday, doses for more than 2 million cattle have been distributed to local governments so far, with another 2.1 million doses expected by Tuesday. Yes, we'll find out more about this disease with an expert later in the show as well. Let's shift to the Israel-Hamas war. Uh, South Korea's foreign minister, Park Jin, held phone conversations with his counterparts in Israel, the United Arab Emirates and Jordan to discuss concerns over rising fatalities. Can you tell us more? Yes, during the talks with Israeli Foreign Minister Ali Cohen on Sunday, Park strongly condemned the indiscriminate attacks by Palestine's Hamas militants while wishing for a prompt release of hostages. The South Korean minister stressed the importance of abiding by international laws and the protection of civilians, calling for the prevention of further harm to innocent non-combatants. Speaking to his UAE counterpart, Sheikh Abdullah bin Zayed El Nayan, and Jordanian counterpart Ayman Safari, Park said the armed conflict between Israel and Hamas must not be expanded, agreeing on the need for humanity. Humanitarian ceasefire. The minister also sought cooperation for the safety of South Koreans in Israel, Lebanon, and elsewhere in the region. This comes as Israeli, Israeli forces say that ground operations in Gaza continued and expanded overnight on Sunday. Turning back to domestic news, prosecutors raided the headquarters and executive offices of the food and beverage company SPC Group. That's over allegations that workers were coerced into withdrawing union memberships. What more can you tell us? The Seoul Central District Prosecutor's Office searched the locations on Monday on suspicion that a group subsidiary, PB Partners, compelled unionized workers at the group's bakery chain, Paris Baguette, to withdraw from the Umbrella Korea Confederation of Trade Unions. The subsidiary is also accused of engaging in unfair labor practices such as discrimination against unionized workers in promotions. The prosecution is reportedly seeking to obtain evidence that group chairman Ho Young-in and other executives had been briefed on and gave orders related to the alleged practices. This comes after the labor ministry referred the case to the prosecution last October with a recommendation to indict PB partner CEO Hwang Jae-bok and other executives for violating the labor union and relations laws. And finally, the South Korean military said it spotted a North Korean vessel stranded near the de facto inter-Korean maritime border in the East Sea on Sunday. Can you tell us what happened? The Joint Chiefs of Staff said that South Korean maritime patrol aircraft spotted the vessel drifting in waters 200 kilometers east of the coastal town of Chejin in Gangwon province and around 3 kilometers north of the eastern northern limit line at 2.15 p.m. After the aircraft saw passengers aboard the vessel waving a large white object in the air and recognized it as a distress signal, the military dispatched a patrol ship that confirmed that it was a North Korean craft. The JCS said that the people on board reported that they had been adrift for 10 days and wished to return to the north, requesting assistance with food and water. The South Korean military fulfilled the request on humanitarian grounds and notified the north of the situation through the United Nations Command and International Maritime Communication Channels to facilitate a rescue operation. A military official in Seoul said on Monday that the vessel was towed away by another North Korean ship late Sunday, but declined to confirm whether the latter was a naval craft. 
We'll wrap it up there for our news briefing today. Ingyung, thank you for those updates. Thank you. Lumpy skin disease is a viral disease in cattle that has quickly spread across Korea's farms since it was first detected earlier this month. As of today, October 30th, the government has confirmed cases in 64 farms. A mass vaccination program is being rolled out and standstill orders have been issued in some areas as well. But there are concerns that such steps are coming too late. To learn more about this disease and what the consequences of this outbreak may be, we have joining us on the line now Professor Timothy Mahoney from the Queensland Alliance for Agriculture and Food Innovation at the University of Queensland. Professor Mahoney, thank you for your time today. No problem, it's good to be here. Can we start with what exactly lumpy skin disease is? I mean, the name uh, gives us an idea of one of its main symptoms, but what can you tell us and how serious is it? So as um, you said in the introduction, lumpy skin disease is a viral disease of cattle and it's a quite a serious disease and it spread from Africa in the early 1900s through um, parts, of, parts of northern Africa then through Asia to where its current location, current distribution is. So it's a, the main symptom is, is, is lumps as the name suggests on, on forming on the cattle. Um, but I guess the other signs or clinical signs of disease, uh, they will initially get a temperature and they may get increased tear production. Um, For dairy cattle, you may get reduced milk production. And for most cattle, you'll get both male and female um, drops in reproductive performance. Mm. And that can either be short term or long term. And I understand that it can be deadly as well. Yeah, so it does cause, it can cause deaths in usually less than 10% of cases. So it's not a, um, an overly serious disease from that perspective. But it's more the clinical effects than the long-term um, clinical effects that can be more serious. Okay, and how is it transmitted? So it's primarily transmitted by biting insects. So things like mosquitoes, um, midges and biting flies. So they're the main, and that's what it's what we call an insect-borne virus, and that's the main mode of transmission. There can be direct cattle-to-cattle transmission um, from exposure to infected bodily fluids, but that's usually rare and it's only a very minor um, mode of transmission. Right, and we have been reporting that uh, LSD does not infect humans. Is that correct? Yes, that's correct. So um, there's no risk to people coming in contact with cattle uh, with lumpy skin or being exposed um, to bodily secretions from those animals. Uh, What about other animals? Can it affect any other animals other than cattle? So cattle are the primary host along with buffalo, uh, and that's where probably the only animals where we see um, overt clinical signs of the lumps appearing on their skin. Uh, It can infect sheep, but it's not a very serious disease of sheep at all and sometimes you might not even know um, they were infected. Right okay and what effects does this have? Uh, How about in terms of for example food consumption? Is eating a food product made of an infected cow including uh, dairy products a health 
threat to consumers? No, so there's no risk to people either from cattle that are showing clinical signs or uh, even consuming products um, that are made from those animals. So uh, it, it, does, it has no um, impact on humans at all, and particularly if food's been cooked um, like many other viruses, uh, it will be completely destroyed by that. But even if it is a cut, it's not known to infect humans. Okay, so it's about affecting the overall health of uh, cattle uh, in a farm then, I'm guessing. Uh, Let's also talk a bit more about proliferation. How much of a contagious disease is this as well? Because we reported the first case only about 10 days ago on October 20th, and since then it's been reported in over 60 farms across the country. Yeah, that's a really interesting question. Um, So we... It would be somewhat debatable from a scientific point of view whether we would call it a contagious disease. So as I said before, there's no direct animal-to-animal transmission, and that's usually what we would define as contagious. However, it is spread um, by insects. So if you've got insects in the environment biting mosquitoes and flies and midges and those sorts of things, then they can um, readily transmit that from an infected animal to an uninfected animal. Now, one of the difficulties with lumpy skin is that it can take quite a long time for those signs of disease to appear. So so the lumps, for example, can take up to 28 days um, before they become visible. So what could happen is you might get an incursion of the disease. The animals, some animals get infected and then it might go on to to be transmitted to other animals, to the insects. But you, then you don't know that it's actually in the country or, or in the location um, and that before it's actually spread from that location. Mm. So that's one potential scenario where you might have it and then it suddenly appears everywhere once you start testing. Right, I see. So uh, currently, as we said, it's been reported in farms across the country except uh, to the two Gyeongsang provinces and Jeju Island. Uh, what have you made of how it's spread so quickly? And also, could there be perhaps a correlation between uh, the climate crisis and transmitter reproduction? In other words, due to the rise of autumn temperatures in Korea, the emergence of mosquitoes breeding this time of year is becoming more and more of a problem. Could one of its ramifications be the LSD outbreak? Yeah, I think that that that's um, a fair comment to make. So certainly uh, in, in other countries... Where in certainly endemic countries, um, there is there have been links with outbreaks or reoccurrence of disease following uh, increased rain and increased temperature, and we do think that that is related to increasing vector numbers. So the more vectors, or insects that are there, then the more likely it is to be able to spread um, throughout. So, so certainly as we move into you know what appears to be a much more variable climate um, and certainly warmer and wetter in some areas, then the potential for increased disease transmission for things like lumpy skin disease and other diseases for that matter um, is going to become increasingly of concern to us. Right, so another unfortunate consequence uh, perhaps related to climate change. Are there any other factors you think that could have fueled the proliferation here in Korea? What other factors are there normally that fuel proliferation? Yeah, so one of the other thing, one thing is there is there are records of lumpy being, lumpy skin being transmitted across large distances, and so that it can be as a consequence of, for example, if there's a big storm, then the, then an infected insect might get blown 
to what appears to be a new area, and that's that's been recorded. Um, not only huge differences, but distances, but certainly um, up to 80, 90 kilometres. So that can can cause that appearance of spread. The other main thing um, is the movement of infected animals. So again, because of that delay in the um, onset of clinical signs, then animals might be moved from one place to another. Um, and it's not known that they're actually infected and they suddenly appear to be infected. Mm. And of course, for us in Australia, one of the key things is legal movement of um, animals from different jurisdictions from country to country. So that, that's been documented, documented in other cases to give this appearance of sort of sudden transmission, but it's actually more to do with illegal animal movement. Right. Uh, let's also... We have to talk about mitigation and preventative measures, of course, as well. How do we fight back against the spread of this virus? For example, can it be treated or do infected uh, cattle, do they just need to be culled like in foot and mouth? So um, foot and mouth is a little bit different in that it's far more contagious So, in terms of uh, animal-to-animal transmission. Mm. So one of the key things for controlling lumpy skin disease is to remove those vectors, so insect controls. Um, so spraying for insects, and that'll have flow-on effects for the other things that they might be transmitted as well. And there are, of course, um, vac- a vaccine available for lumpy skin disease, and that's I've heard an introduction that the that that's being widely adopted in, in Korea, and that that will certainly um, help in, in like stopping the the spread, spread of the um, virus. Right. The government uh, plans to complete nationwide inoculations of cattle by November 10th, but authorities say the number of cases will likely rise for the time being, considering that it takes around three weeks to develop antibodies uh, against the disease. The concern is the, the damage it will do until then. But is that the only way to really battle this at this point for us? So it is. And so I think, with, as I said before, with those vector control mechanisms in place, uh, also, um, there's the standstill or, that, or um, stopping movement of animal, potentially infected animals from um, different locations. So that's another strategy that we would potentially use here as well. Um, the likelihood is that because it is appearing in, in a lot of different places, is that there will be animals that are getting vaccinated that may already be infected. Mm. Um, and so it all will depend on the timing um, around when the animal might get vaccinated versus when it might get exposed. Um, but as you said, there will, it does for all vaccines, there is a time period required between vaccination and the onset of protection. So um, I guess with all these things, the soon, sooner it gets uh, done, the better. But yes, I would be very surprised if there weren't um, for at least a, a short lag period between that uh, animals getting vaccinated and then that stopping of actually seeing clinical signs in the field. And finally, is there anything more that the government could have done to anticipate or prevent this? Or was it perhaps understandable that this disease wasn't common enough for uh, the government to adopt a mass vaccination program before it fled up? Yeah, I think it would be for something like lumpy skin disease and other what we would term as exotic diseases. Um, the the type of vaccine that's used against lumpy, it's not really the right type to be using as a preventative. Um, as in, on on as in, you might think you might get it one day, 
Um, so it really has to be is more in terms of response. And I think it wasn't, it's not, I mean, these sorts of things are never really inevitable, but with all the, the factors um, that go into it, it is a very difficult thing um, to avoid. I mean, we, have, Australia, have the advantage that we're surrounded by um, ocean, and that's probably one of the, the, um, the geographical isolation can protect you. So I think you mentioned that, that one there's one island that's still free of the disease, and it'll be interesting to see um, how that plays out because they might be the ones that um, would be able to stay disease-free. Right, so there's not a lot uh, the government can do then, you're saying, to uh, prevent this in the future. We just have to respond quickly when it does occur. Yeah, absolutely. So so good surveillance, um, understanding what's happening in the field, and the sooner you can detect those outbreaks and then address it through vaccination, isolation, vector control... Uh, the better, and then that stops it from becoming more widespread. I see. Well, uh, the numbers are continuing to rise here in Korea, uh, but hopefully by December we will start to see the vaccination program taking effect and see the numbers starting to fall. Uh, we'll leave it there. We've been speaking to Professor Timothy Mahoney from the University of Queensland. Thank you for walking us through uh, this issue today. No, my pleasure. Great to talk to you. Welcome to the Korea 24 Stock and Forex Update. The benchmark Korea Composite Stock Price Index gained 7.74 points, or 0.34% on Monday, to close the day at 2,310.55. The tech-heavy KOSDAQ also rose, climbing 8.63 points, or 1.15%, to close at 757.12. On the foreign exchange, the local currency strengthened 5-1 against the U.S. dollar closing the day at 1,350.91. You can check Korean stock and forex closings at world.kbs.co.kr. It's time now for Korea Trending, our daily segment where we take a look at some other news stories that have been trending online. And for that, we have with us now in the studio, contributor Diane Yu. Diane, hello. It's great to see you again. Hello, jang Let's get straight into the first story. What do you have for us? An event will be held in the UK to promote the beauty of South Korea's cultural heritage through various attractions such as K-pop concerts and media art exhibitions. According to the Cultural Heritage Administration on Monday, a Cultural Heritage Visit Campaign special event is slated to be held from Tuesday to the 25th of November in London, England. Jointly hosted with the Korea Cultural Heritage Foundation and the Korean Cultural Center in the UK, the four-week event is being held to commemorate the one 140th anniversary of the establishment of diplomatic ties between South Korea and the UK. Wow, so essentially it's a month-long event. It's Mm -hmm. a big deal. Uh, Can you walk us through the activities that will be held to commemorate this important year then? Under the theme of K-Heritage, A New World, the event introduces various attractions and experiences utilizing Korea's cultural heritage. The event will begin with an opening ceremony where major figures from the Korean and British culture and art circles gather in one place. At the event held at the Korean Cultural Center in the UK on Tuesday afternoon local time, guests get to watch performances while enjoying traditional rice cakes and snacks. There's also a media art exhibition being held 
from Wednesday to November 25th in the Korean Cultural Center's Exhibition Hall. With the title, Here With You, The Beauty of Korean Heritage, UNESCO World Heritage Sites representing Korea, including Changdeokgung Palace and Bulguksa Temple, will be transformed into paintings by a famous British artist. I understand that there are also events that will showcase Korea's traditional music, right? Yes, the performance Sorit Gongam in London, sharing Korean folk music, will be held from Thursday to Friday, which allows the audience to experience the country's beautiful and unique sounds and dances. And of course, we can't forget about K-pop. Next Wednesday, groups including Stacey will appear on stage at Wembley, uh, Wembley Arena in London. For those who wish to watch the performance, the concert is going to be aired on KBS has two TV at the end of November. Oh, wow. So the concert will be aired in Korea as well. Mm -hmm. It sounds like it'll be quite the celebration and a great way for folks in London to get a taste of uh, Korean culture. Yes. Okay, let's move on to our second story. What else do you have for us today? In Korea, ancestral rites have been held to commemorate departed ancestors and to express gratitude to them since ancient times. It's one of the deep-rooted traditional events in the nation. However, with the chance change of time, people's perception of those rites has also changed. According to Song Kyung-gwan's Ritual Establishment Committee's research on 1,500 men, men and women aged 20 or older on the perspective on ancestral rites, 56% of them said they will not continue to perform the ceremonies. Song Kyung-gwan is an institution dedicated to preserving traditional Confucian culture in Korea. That means only about 4 out of 10 people are willing to continue this tradition. That's correct. And the number of people performing the rites has been on a downward trend, right? Uh-huh. According to their research, only 62% of people responded that they are currently performing ancestral rites. Considering that number and how more than half of participants said they do not plan to continue, the number of people performing ancestral rites is expected to decrease significantly in the future. Yes, this was the centerpiece event when families gathered for the holidays or when people commemorated uh, the anniversaries of uh, family members' deaths. So it's quite a dramatic shift in tradition Mm -hmm. that we are starting to see. Did the research look into the reasons for people's Um, should we say, indifference to these ceremonies now? Yeah, respondents cited it's better to simplify or replace those rites with a family gathering as the biggest reason. The answer was followed by people saying that ancestral rites are no longer necessary due to changes in the times and religious reasons or beliefs. And it was a ceremony that asked a lot of family members taking part as Mm -hmm. well, especially uh, women who were expected to prepare food that would be used for this ceremony, as well as the food that would feed the people coming to the gatherings as well, of course. Uh, But based on people's opinions and feedback then, Song Kyung-gwan is planning to announce a revised recommendation for holding ancestral rights. That's correct, yeah. Respondents pointed out that simplification of the food and format of the ceremonies needed the most improvement in order to keep the tradition. And based on their feedback, Feedback and the characteristics of modern society, the committee plans to announce a recommendation for modernizing ancestral rights on Thursday. The committee is considering ways to simplify the food offerings and reflect the view that it can be done differently depending on family customs, regional characteristics, and the form of the ancestral rights. Yes, it does seem to be a fight against the tide, but there will, of course, be many concerns about losing traditions too quickly mm. that has uh, defined Korean culture for so long. Right. OK, let's continue on to our final story. Uh, what else has been trending? 
Many in Korea are reading about novelist Han Gang being listed as a finalist in the foreign language categories of two prestigious French literary awards. According to Han's publisher, Munak Dongne, over the weekend, the French edition of I Do Not Bid Farewell was included in the five finalists for the Prix Femina for Foreign Literature on October 24th. This comes roughly a week after the book was shortlisted for the Prix Medici's for Foreign Literature on October 18th. Yes, Han is perhaps best known for being the first Korean writer to win the International Booker Prize in mm-hmm. 2016 with her novel The Vegetarian. I should say she's yeah. the only winner as well. Yeah. And she has won many awards since, but it looks like uh, there could be more coming then. Yeah, definitely. The Free Femina and Medici's Awards are considered to be among the country's four major literary awards, so winning them would be a great accomplishment. Established in 1985 as a category within the Femina, the Prefemina for Foreign Literature honors the year's greatest foreign language literary works translated into French. Previously, two works by Korean writers, Lee Seung Woo's The Reverse, uh, Reverse Side of Life and Hwang Seok Young's At Dusk were nominated for the award. And created in 1970 to reward experimental works, the Pre Medici's include the Medici Foreign Literature Award as one of its foreign literature categories. And this is Han's second nomination following her book, Greek Lesson in 2017. The Korean novelist uh, often touches on uh, serious, very serious topics in her books. Yeah. And I do not bid farewell is no different, right? That's correct. The story depicts the Jeju massacre through the perspectives of three women when tens of thousands of innocent civilians' lives were lost on April 3rd, 1948. The title of the French version of the book is Impossible Adieu. Uh, French daily newspaper Le Monde praised the book saying, from the first page, the continuum between dreams and reality is created, setting a unique and credible mental space. The winner's of both awards will be announced next week, pre-Famina on November 6th and pre-Medici's on the 9th. Right, we'll keep an eye out for those announcements next week. In the meantime, we'll wrap it up there for Career Trending. Diane, thank you for those stories and we'll see you next time. See you next time. Welcome back now to Monday Sports Roundup, our weekly segment with the latest sporting results, scores and headlines from Korea. And our source for those updates is sports reporter Yu Ji-ho from the Yanap News Agency, who joins us on the line now. Jio, hello. It's great to have you on again. Yeah, it's great to be here too. Ulsan Hyundai FC have been crowned champions of the K-League for the second year in a row. They won it at home on Sunday after they defeated Daegu FC 2-0. And they won the title with time to spare as well. There are still three matches remaining in the football season. This is Ulsan's fourth title in their history, but the first time they've won it back-to-back. Jio, how did it go down? Yeah, you know, the, their substitutes, Kim Min-hyuk and Chang Ji-young, really came through, scoring a goal apiece in the second half. On home turf, as Ulsan clinched the championship in front of nearly 19,000 fans, a vast majority of them obviously Ulsan supporters. Uh, so Ulsan improved to 70 points, that's 10 ahead of Pohang Steelers, with each team having three matches remaining. So Pohang cannot catch Ulsan even if they win their remaining matches. Uh, Ulsan began the season on a six match winning streak. There's two losses in their first 21 matches to really open up a huge lead. And they really allowed them to stay out in front despite some late summer or early fall hiccups. You know, they came into this Sunday's match with 
only one win in their previous seven and none in three. And they hadn't scored a goal in the past three matches, but uh, and also in the first half of Sunday's match. And they managed to score twice in the second half of Sunday to seal the deal. Uh, I guess they were a little fortunate also that Pohang went through a dry spell pretty much the same time as Wusan did. And Chumbuk, their, I guess, longtime nemesis who had given some given them some hard time in recent years, they were out of uh, contention pretty early in the season. So uh, Wusan, you know, they won the title last year by three points. This year, right now, they're up 10 uh, with three matches to go. So it's going to be, uh, at, at the end of the day, it's going to be a pretty, uh, I guess, uh, easier uh, tighter run than maybe last year. Right. Ulsan stormed ahead in the first half of the season. Uh, but you're saying that perhaps it wasn't just Ulsan doing well, but perhaps other teams not being able to capitalise on Ulsan perhaps falling uh, a bit short in the second half that contributed to the title win as well. Chambuk especially, really disappointing this year, right? Yeah, you know, they went through the coaching change. Chambuk did. Uh, you know, the, the, when, when Ulsan were finishing runner-ups every year, it was always Chumbuk on top, uh, you know, kind of holding them off at the last minute or coming from behind to, to catch Wilson on the you know, last, last week or second to last week of the season. So, and for Chumbuk to uh, not even really come close to winning a title this year, uh, it's been a really disappointing campaign for them. And also Po Hong, they had a really great chance to really make, some, make up some ground uh, toward maybe around late August, early September-ish. Uh, this, this is one able to do it. Um, so Wilson, you know, I mean, give them credit. They they opened up a big lead early in the year and they were able to kind of uh, live off of that mm. uh, in the second half of the season. Yes, congratulations to Ulsan once again. This could mark the start of an era for the southeastern port city unless others uh, do some serious catching up uh, next year. OK, let's stick with football now, but turn to the women's game. Uh, South Korea played North Korea to a goalless draw in their Olympic qualifying match in China on Sunday. Despite that, both Koreas still have a chance of advancing to the next round in the Asian qualifying tournament, with one match remaining on Wednesday. So, what do the Taeguk ladies have to do now? Yeah, the math is pretty simple. South Korea have to beat China on Wednesday, and they're going to be in good position to either win their group, Group B, and reach the third round, or at least become the best runner-up in the second round out of three groups in this phase and kind of sneak into the third round. So if South Korea win, they're going to improve to seven points and will likely retain the goal difference edge over North Korea. Right now it's 9-1. to one. And North Korea obviously favored to defeat Thailand on Wednesday to also reach seven points. Uh, and seven points also will be good enough to make South Korea the best runner-up team in the second round because other teams in groups A and C, their second-place teams right now have three points with one match to go. So the best they can do is get six points. And if South Korea end up with seven, uh, the worst that can happen is they're going to be the best runner-up team and still move on to the third round. And after the third round, the two winners of the two elect uh, playoffs uh, will punch their tickets to Paris. And obviously, South Korea have never played in the Olympics in the women's uh, football tournament which made its Olympic debut back in 1996. Uh, but beating China for South Korea is not an easy task at all. Mm. So they've had 41 meetings so far. South Korea have lost 29 of, 29 of those 41 meetings, uh, along with only five wins and seven draws. They haven't beaten China since 2015. Uh, if, you, if you recall, uh, during the final phase of the uh, 
qualification for the Tokyo Olympics in 2021. Korea blew a lead in the second half to lose to China and uh, just miss out on the qualifying. And of course, the final of the Asian Cup last year, Korea were leading 2-0 and then gave up three goals in the second half to lose by one goal. So a lot of heartbreaks against China, but uh, hopefully they're going to try to uh, maybe flip the narrative a little bit this, uh, this time around. Right, so history is against them and it's going to be a tough game for South Korea, especially in front of that Chinese home crowd as well. But we'll see what happens. That game will be taking place at 8.35pm Korea time on Wednesday. Let's turn to baseball now. In the ongoing KBO postseason, the KT Wiz are hosting the NC Dinos for the start of their new series Monday. In fact, it's going on right now. The starting pitching matchup features two of the league's top right-handers on the mound. Gio, although it has started, can you walk us through what we need to be looking out for in this best-of-five series? Yeah, sure. The KT Wiz had a bye to this stage after finishing the regular season with the uh, second-best record. Uh, but you know what? They last played on October 10th. So uh, they gave some banged-up players time to heal. But at the same time, uh, you know, there's kind of a long layoff between uh, their last regular season game and the first playoff game. Now, the NC Dinos, they're undefeated in four games this postseason. Uh, they completed a three-game sweep of the uh, last year's champions, SSG Landers, last week to give themselves four days off coming into this series. Uh, starting pitching matchup, Eric Fetty for the, for the Dinos, uh, William Cuevas for the, for the Wiz, in a battle of the aces. Uh, Fetty won the triple crown during the regular season, uh, leading the league in wins, ERA, and strikeouts. But he, he missed some earlier postseason games after taking a batted ball to his right forearm in his last regular season start back on October 16th. Uh, so a bullpen session last week was clear to pitch on Monday, now, Cuevas was 12-0, did not lose a decision uh, in 15 starts, had a 2.60 ERA, uh, second tour of duty with the Wiz. Uh, he was a playoff hero for them in their run to the first ever title back in 2021. And the team is obviously counting on much the same performance uh, this time around. Now, on 32 previous occasions, uh, the team that won game one of this uh, best of five series went on to take the series in 27 times. That's about 70% of the time. So winning game one, pretty important for both teams, obviously. And the Wiz will have to overcome a little bit of rust. I think they're nearly going. And the Dinos, they wrote their bullpen really hard in the earlier rounds. Uh, they're going to, you know, those pitchers got some rest and they're going to be ready to go this in this series. Right. And for the winner, of course, the Korean series awaits. Uh, we'll see where we stand this time next week. And finally, let's turn to volleyball, where the Tongwanjang Red Sparks have had an incredible start to the new season, slaying V-League giants left and right. They beat first place Hunguk Life last Thursday and then second place Hyundai ENC on Sunday as well. Jiho, let's talk about their recent run. Yeah, I mean, those are the two teams, two of the best teams even last season too and also two of the best this season. But for Jung uh, Jang, their Indonesian import, uh, Megawati Pertiwi, scored a match-high 22 points on Sunday as uh, Red Sparks took down Hyundai in straight sets, 25-22, 25-21, and 25-16. So Jung Guanjang improved to 3-1, sitting at eight points, only two back of Hyundai, uh, first place still, and one behind Hong Kong Life, they're in second place. Now, opposite Spiker Pertiwi had 31 points against Hongkok, and staying high against the Hyundai with uh, six points in the first set, nine in the second set. Chong uh, Guanjang had six blocks in the third set alone to shut things down. Their outside hitter, Giovanna Milana, chipped in 18 points, including four aces. 
What do you think, Gio? Can they keep it up, or is the fact that we're so surprised show that they are probably overachieving at the moment? Uh, just a little bit, but I like the fact that, you know, you know, starting this year, teams have the Asian quarter, right? Uh, so they couldn't assign players from Asia out, other than their usual foreign players. And, you know, uh, Pertu per has been really good. Uh, I think they might have the, the best Asian import so far this season. So they're taking full, full advantage of the new role change this year. So they might just be able to keep this up. We'll wrap it up there. Jiho, thank you for those updates and we'll talk to you again soon. OK, thanks for having me. This is pianist Son Yegwan. You're now listening to Korea 24 on KBS World Radio. We've come to our closing segment now, Morning Edition Preview, where we take a look at some interesting features, reports coming out in tomorrow's newspapers, namely the Korea Times and the Korea Herald, who we thank for providing us with their early editions to make this segment possible. And for that, we have joining us in the studio now, our staff editor, Richard Larkin. Hello. It's uh, great to see you. Hello. Hope you had a nice weekend. Yes, hope you did too. Mm -hmm. Uh, I believe we have just one story for today. Yes. Uh, What have you chosen for us? So Park Yuna from the Korea Herald interviewed Uli Sig. He used to be the Swiss ambassador to North Korea, and he has quite an impressive art collection. I chose the article because he gives his thoughts on Korean art, so where it is globally, as well as his thoughts on the relationship between South and North Korea. And yeah, it can be found in the culture section of the paper. Okay, interesting. I see in the notes here that we have that Sig at one point was also the Swiss ambassador to China and Mongolia, and that he's widely known for his art collection, Mm -hmm. mainly works from China. From what I understand, he had, and maybe still has, a huge collection of Chinese art. Mm. It was so big that at one point, when the M Plus Museum opened in Hong Kong in 2021, Sig donated 60% of his collection to the museum. Wow, okay. The article explains that some 2,500 pieces were given altogether. It, It is also said to be one of the most comprehensive collections of contemporary Chinese art in the world. Mm. But yeah, as I said, Uh, He has a collection of Korean art from both Koreas, 12 from North Korea and 78 from South Korea. In the interview, Sig said that contemporary South Korean art has made its way into the global mainstream of contemporary art. Wow, so he is quite the avid art collector indeed then. And you said he has a collection of Korean art, both uh, South and North. Does he Mm -hmm. explain why he became interested in Korean art when his interest is mainly Chinese? So he says that he was attracted by the outstanding technical skill. Mm. He talked about one artist in particular, Yi Suk-kyung. Her works often show her desire for the reunification of Korea. For example, her The Other Side of the Moon piece was made using ceramics fragments from North Korea. So yeah, Sig has been a huge supporter of Yi and the theme is what drew him in. Right. And as we've said on the show as well, uh, Korean art has really been growing in recent years. And this is something Sig has, Ambassador Sig has noticed as well, it Mm. seems. Uh, You mentioned at the start, he also talks about his thoughts on the relationship between South and North Korea. As someone who 
is interested in uh, revolving around the reunification of Korea mm. then, and as someone who has, who was an ambassador in North Korea, what does he say about any possible solution in the future? Well, he doesn't sound that hopeful, sadly. He <laughs> said in the interview that a peaceful solution has not been found as of yet. And he even said that there is a lack of vision and that both countries are still not even able to reach the first steps of the path that leads to a solution. Right. So he does sound rather pessimistic yes. indeed then. Uh, but still, perhaps uh, through this interest in art uh, of the two worlds, uh, he can help provide the mm. wider world a glimpse uh, into the two worlds as well. OK, that's what we'll wrap it up for Morning Edition Preview. Thank you for those stories, Richard. And we'll see you next time. Thank you. And that pretty much does it for our show today. We have just enough time today, though, to remind you that there are various ways to listen to the show. You can listen on our apps, KBS Kong, KBS World Radio and KBS World Radio On Air. We also have a 24-hour stream of KBS World Radio's English service that's available on YouTube, so you can catch us there. There's also our website, of course, where you can find all our previous shows as a podcast. And of course, the show is available on popular podcast apps, so you can find us on those platforms as well. That's where we'll wrap it up. Thank you for staying with us. Join us again tomorrow, where we'll have another special guest for our Touch Basins whole segment, as well as the latest news updates and analysis. Till then, we hope you have a great day. I've been your host, Kwon Jang-ho, and thank you, as always, for listening. Goodbye. KBS World Radio.